We want to turn our attention to the scriptures this morning. Psalm 2 is our Old Testament text. We just memorized this a few months ago, so it should be fresh in our minds, even if it's not readily upon our lips. <laughs> you know how that is. Yeah, I know what Psalm 2 says, more or less. I get that all the time from our confirmation kids with their memory stuff. They sort of know it, and they dance around it, but they don't go boom, 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 here's what it says. But we want to hear exactly what Psalm 2 says today. When we were memorizing it, I said that this is a psalm for all times. Uh, and we'll see that that is indeed the case as we preach today. Listen here to God's word. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Seeing shifts up to heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Scene shifts again. The king speaks. <clears throat> I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And then there's the teaching that comes forth from that. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Our first New Testament text and ciliary text is from Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. I'm sure we've memorized this somewhere along the line. I don't remember exactly where or when we did, but I'm sure we did. Again, it's very familiar to us. It's a great text. Listen here to God's word. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. And then our primary text today is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Can you believe we're this far already in Revelation? We started last fall preaching through Revelation, and boom, 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 and here we are all the way to chapter 19. So uh, we're, we're about to the end, just a few more weeks. Uh, I'll introduce where this is, the time frame of, of Revelation, uh, during the course of the sermon, I think. So listen here to God's word. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and of the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, we have already turned our hearts, our minds, our direction toward you. We want to honor you. We want to worship you, but Lord, we also want to receive from you. We want you to cause the light of your presence to shine upon us through the preaching of your word. We know that that's not something that can be done by man. That requires you, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to work here in us and in our midst. So we ask you to come. Whether we're right here in this building or we're somewhere distant in a home, or for somewhere in another state, or even in another country, Lord, we ask for you now to come, minister to us, feed us. We ask through Christ Jesus, our Savior, the Lord of all. Amen. The book of Revelation has generated diverse opinions. Would you agree with me? Yes, you would agree with me. You better agree with me or we're going to throw you out. How's that? You have to turn your television off uh, if you don't agree with that. Uh, down through the years, all sorts of discussion, assertions, and speculations have arisen, as it were, from its pages. But for one part of the book of Revelation, part of our text today, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, there is almost universal agreement about the person who's represented there. Isn't that great? Hallelujah. Something on which everyone agrees about the book of Revelation. It's that the person depicted there is the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, I've not found anyone who disputes that. I've read lots of different things. Maybe you know someone who has, but I, I've not uh, known anyone, any commentary, ancient or modern, that's disputed that. Now, all the surrounding details are up for grabs. <laughs> you know, all the the, the armies of heaven, the rod of iron, the diadems, the, you know, the, all that. Plus, the timing, the occasion, all that, that's all up for grabs. 
But we all agree that it is the, the uh, Lord Jesus Christ there. So what I want to do initially this morning, I've done it a number of times, but what's the best, most assured method of teaching? It's called repetition. So I want to repeat again, what are our basic interpretive framework presumptions when we approach the book of Revelation? When I say we, I mean me, but uh, how we've done this as a church, preaching through the book of Revelation. So they're going to project onto the screen here, uh, the most significant interpretive decisions for how to understand Revelation are based on the date or timeline when it was written and to whom it was written. It is a prophecy for when. So that's the, the uh, things we need to know. Now, let's read some of the things it says there. It says, uh, write, this is Revelation 1, uh, verse 11. Yes, it's there. Write in a book and send it to the seven churches. There were real churches, real people, real congregations, just like we are here, here, okay, and they received this. So it wasn't some gossamer image or something like that. It was, they had real names. And you remember the first, the first, the second and third chapter of Revelation go through and tell about those churches, very specific details that apply to them in that time and in that setting. Now, you say, well, gee whiz, I'm glad that, that uh, the Lord sent a message to Laodicea and Ephesus and Philadelphia and Smyrna and Pergamum and all them. But how about us? We're here and wherever it is we're located. Well, now there's another thing we need to remember from Hermeneutics 101. It's Romans 15 verses verse 4. There we go. Here's what it says. Well, I already forgot something. Did I? Yep, I forgot something. I've got all these notes here. You know, you have to make sure you get them right. Uh, let me go back to something else. Let's go back to, to uh, Revelation 1.3. It says this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. Michael was worried I'd messed up. And he was right, I had messed up. So now we've got it straight. We need to understand that these words were written at a time when they were not yet accomplished. It's a prophecy, right? It's a prophecy. It's what it says. It self-identifies there. But like I said before, we may get upset. Well, how come, you know, it doesn't mention the church in Satterton or the church wherever it is? Well, that's where we go back to Hermeneutics 101, uh, Romans 15, 4. And here's what that says. It says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, we need to understand that about all the Bible. It, it, just, it talks about, it shows, it puts forth right and true and accurate historical data. Uh, that data, we should understand, applies to us in some way. We have to, that's where the Hermeneutics 102 comes in. How do you apply that data? But we need to know that, that just because it was something that was written long ago and about a situation far away does not mean that it does not have application to us where we are right now. So that's the, what we need to know, why we're not bad about this. Now, uh, the, 
So it's written to real people in real time, but we still have application. We also know that it was written for a particular time frame. It says this, there's three, three texts from Revelation 1. Things which must soon take place, do you see that? Uh, heed the things written in it, for the time is near. Those are both right in the opening chapters, chapter opening verses. And then at the very end, chapter 22, it says, for the time is near. With a late date for the authorship of this work, that is the late, mid to late 90s, it's hard to find a historical application where the events that are depicted uh, actually occur in some kind of a time that's near to that. It's just very difficult to do that. Now the result of that is that the words near and soon are meant to mean far. <laughs> far away. Far away. As we know all this stuff that's written here, it's for far away. Well, no, it says it's near. And the guys who got this are going to say, it's near. You mean it's going to happen soon? Well, yeah, that's what it says. Or you're forced to take those words, soon and near, and say, well, that means the rapidity with which those events happen, that is, they happen quickly. Once they start, they roll off very quickly. And, you know, that's, that's one way to approach that. That's not the way I think is best to approach that. But we're not going to, you know, condemn anyone because that's the way they do that. Uh, but for us, as we work our way, have worked our way through Revelation, I think we've seen that it really does make sense to understand that this was written by John in the mid-60s. And it had application to, the, to the, the, the very time that he's living in. So, uh, by the way, you know what the liberals do? Now, you all don't know very many liberals, perhaps, and talk to them about Revelation. I have. I've read books and stuff like that. They say, you know, Revelation is mostly about the events of the Jewish rebellion in, from 66 to 70. But John wrote this in the 90s. And what John was doing, he was writing history in the guise of prophecy. I mean, you, have, you can find books about this. That they, they put it right out there. It says, well, yeah, it describes the things that happened in AD 60, 60, AD 70, but it's in the guise of prophecy because he was writing it in the year 90 or 95 or someplace beyond that. Or really liberal people will say, well, even beyond that, someone else, not even John, wrote this in you know, 125 or 225 or something like that. But it's history written in the guise of prophecy. Well, we propose that the date and timing is, in fact, for when it was written, and most of the events that happened, is in A.D. 66 to 70. I think they have that slide up there. Do you have it up there yet, Michael? There it is. What it's supposed to say is that the primary focus is the events leading up to and taking place during the Jewish rebellion against Rome in A.D. 66 through 70, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman 10th Legion in A.D. 70. Uh, we saw that, we, we mentioned last week that uh, I think it's uh, chapter 16, verse 17, where it says, it's done. It's, it, it, that chapter described the destruction of Jerusalem, and we had numbers of things about that. Now, part of what happens for us 
is that you have the end already there. Well, well what, what do we need to see? Well, there's a pivotal change of focus and of direction that occurs in chapter 19 where we are, verse 6 that we read last week in the, the fourth Alleluia. There's a pivotal change and it occurs when the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. We're there and it's, it's, the, it's the consummation of everything. And all of a sudden from there on, the, the, the view is going to be from AD 70 out through the, 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 the vision of history all the way to the very end of the finale. So, uh, from this point on, just what it says on the screen there, the vision will be from the events of AD 70 down through the rest of history. It will culminate in God's final triumph, the final return of Jesus bodily, and the renewal of the heavens and the earth. Now today, we begin with some of the seven final visions. Uh, each of these visions begin with the words, I saw. So I have them there for you. Uh, seven times John will say, I saw. Here in 1911, 1917, 1919, 21, 20 verse 4, 20 verse 11, and 21.1. The same formula. And then there's a little vision there. And what that is, is uh, it'll offer a different perspective on that vision down through history to the end of time uh, for each of one of those visions. He's going to see that. But he's looking forward, not forward way forehead, not backward or anything else. And each will offer a perspective for us to understand what God is doing in the world all through history. Now today, our, we have 11 through 21. Let's, let's look at 11, 6, 11 through 16 initially. That's the main one we'll actually stick most of our time with. This is, in fact, the Word of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The identity, I think, is, is clear for us. It says He's faithful and true. There's no one else who's faithful and true than the Lord Jesus Christ. It says He has eyes of fire. He's been described already like this in previous parts of this, this uh, book. Eyes of fire, looking right through folks and where things are. He's crowned with diadems. We should say, crowning with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. He knows His identity. Jesus is the one, remember in John He says, I know uh, where I'm from, where I am, and where I'm going. He knows all of who He is. He has His own identity. He knows that no one else can figure it all out necessarily. He has a robe dipped in blood, it says. The word for dipped is bapto. He's been baptized with a baptism, if you would. Remember, remember when uh, the disciples in John, I think it's Matthew 20, said, we want to do this, can, can you drink the cup I, I, I'm, I'm drinking or be baptized with the baptism which I'm about to undergo? Oh, we're able, yes, we're able, they said, but uh, we'll see. But he's been, his robe is dipped in blood. He is, in fact, the Word of God. We all know that. Proclaimed, He's the Word of God. And finally, to confirm our identification, He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no one in all of recorded history for whom that is appropriately uh, labeled on them, King of kings and Lord of lords, except the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So, what does Jesus do? It's interesting if you read those verses again, 11 through 16, I'm going to highlight four things that he does, this Jesus. It says he judges and wages war. Whew. You say, oh, I, I don't know about that. Well, I don't know either. Here's what it says. He judges and wages war. It says he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. You'll see a lot of stained glass windows done in the Middle Ages and afterwards where they'll have a, usually it's when you walk out to the west, there's a big rose window there and they have a picture. I've seen numbers of these in real life uh, where they have a picture of Jesus on a white charger and a sword's coming out of his mouth. Now we all know that that's not meant to be a photograph, right? I could go back and show you those slides again too, that this is not a photograph, this is a, this is a representation. But as you go out into the world, go out to the west, out of the, the nave of the sanctuary, know that the, you're following the one who sits on the charger, who's going forth, and the sword of his word is coming right out of his mouth. So it uh, has a sharp sword, and what does he do? He strikes down the nations with it. Then number three, it says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now that word for rule there, we need to know, is the word for shepherd. Again, that's a, if you have a New American Standard, you'll see that on the side margin where you have some information there, you'll see literally for rule it means shepherd. So we need to make sure we understand that. And I'll talk about this in just a little bit. How much time we got? We got plenty of time. No problem. Wendy's grinning because she doesn't think we have plenty of time. I'll talk faster. How's that? <laughs> oh, no, don't do that, John. Uh, so he will rule or shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And fourth, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God, the Pantocrator. That's, that's the degree. Pantocrator. I love that word. The Pantocrator. That's usually what's on the, the east side as you come into the sanctuary of a, a big Gothic cathedral. They have a big rose window there. And they have the Pantocrator there. The one who made everyone, who, who rules everything. He's there. Well, he's going to exercise the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, you got the vision? What does that look like in reality? You guys want to know, I can tell. What in the world does that look like, John? How, how, how are we going to understand that? Well, here's a good text from Isaiah chapter 11. Here's what it says. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. May I say to you, that has happened throughout history. From the outside the Garden of Eden till the final return happens, this is part of what goes on. This is a historical thing. This has happened throughout history. So you find that happening to Assyria, to Babylon, to Tyre, to Edom. Just name off the nations. Each of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, have long sections simply devoted to saying, here's God's judgment on these nations. Boom, 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 boom. And names them all. Names a bunch of them anyway. Not all of them. And, and it says that Pat and I are reading through uh, Ezekiel right now. We went through a portion where he said that. It says, the thing is, when he brings judgment on them, then they will know that I am the Lord. He's going to judge them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, that's, that's the, the point of all those 
passages. But so all throughout history, God's been declaring He's going to judge people, and He has judged nations, and kings and rulers and all other people as well. Now, that's why I want us to consider Psalm 2. That's why our Old Testament text is from there. Notice that this psalm is not tied to any particular time or nation. Why are the Babylonians in an uproar? Why are the Americans in an uproar? Why are the Egyptians in an uproar? It doesn't say that, does it? It says, why are the nations in an uproar? And the king's devising a vain thing. Well, uh, and it doesn't, like I said, it's not, it's not tied to a particular nation. It's not tied to a particular time chronologically. But it, it enunciates a principle we need to grasp. Now, we're going to have a pop quiz here. So if you're at home, get your paper out, see if you answer the, the pop quiz here. What is our biblical view of history? We've done this maybe two or three months ago. The biblical view of history, you don't remember this? I can see people here say, don't call on me, John. (laughs) Okay, I won't. (laughs) The biblical view of history is that it's cyclical in a linear fashion. Okay? It's moving toward the goal, but the same plot line plays out regularly. That's why the gospel is canned. It's the same gospel. You're lost. You're in big trouble. Someone came to save you, receive him, and you'll be all, you know, be better. Well, the same thing happens again and again and again and again and again, but it's all working toward a final goal. It's not just cyclical like it's repeating, like in certain Eastern religions where you have, you know, reincarnation. No, we don't believe in reincarnation. That's supporting to man to die once. That's all. But the patterns are there. And Psalm 2 shows us that pattern for the nations. Rulers, that is Caesars, always are prone to want to displace God. Now, rulers have their proper sphere. God's one who raises them up. It says in Romans 13 that they're deacons of God. The trouble is, they forget that they're deacons of God, and they think they're, they're powers unto themselves. They forget that all the power they have is delegated, and they're going to give an answer to that to God in due time. So, the pattern is there. Kings and rulers, presidents and prime ministers tend to seek to displace God. But the reality is, is that God has installed His King. He's done it. The Lamb has been slain from when? The foundation of the world. God has installed His King, and it is the Word of God, just so you know. Remember Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth forth His handiwork, day to day they pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. All, 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 and it talks about the senses. There's nothing, it's rising from one end of the heavens, it's circuit to the other end of the, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. No matter where you are on the globe, where created human beings are, there's nothing hidden from that 
testimony of nature. Then you have Romans 1, it talks about God's written word and how that is for us. It's there, it's, it's, and we, we fight against it to our great detriment. Now, two things come from that. One, we need to know God's power and God's rule. That's what all people need to recognize. You need to recognize that. I need to recognize that. You need to recognize that. God is the pantocrator. He, he rules over all. I'm going to say something that sounds bad. If we were in a place where the media were, they could take this out and make a nice clip of it. But, you know, God doesn't care what you think. How's that? You hear that? Doesn't that sound horrible? But God doesn't care what you think. He says, here's what I said. And he tells us, come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together. I don't care what you think, but come, let us reason together. And though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. <laughs> anyway, so they show that, that we need to know God's power. The second thing, we need to know our need. And there are ongoingly things that happen in life that show us our need, how we're a dependent people. What's my favorite example? What can someone, some, anyone know? Raise your hand if you know. Favorite example? Goosey? Pardon? I can't hear what she says. I'm hard of hearing. Yeah, exactly right. Try not to breathe for a while. I'm completely self-sufficient. I don't need anything to help me. Really? Stop breathing. Every breath you take brings something from outside of you that's not you into you so you can live. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And there's things all around. We've got to eat food. Man, some of us have got to stop eating food, but you know, we all got to eat food if we're going to live. Right? So we need to know the greatness of God's power and the depth of our need. Those are the two things that God proclaims in His in this psalm too, I think, among other things. And then there, it closes with this instruction. It's a call to repentance and worship. Now, I would like for Jaden or whoever's back here to put up the, the passage from Isaiah 45. This is what God has been doing from the beginning. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. All right. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will save me only in the Lord or righteousness and strength. That's God's plan A. And that's going to happen. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care what I think. That's what's going to be. But he calls us, come on, come on. Turn to me. Be saved. I don't care where you are, chronologically or geographically, or where you are in your time in life. Come to me, turn to me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Now then, so that deals with some part here. What was I dealing with? Oh, what do those actions look like in reality? Well, what about that rod of iron? I'd like to talk about that a little bit, preach about that. Remember that it says you will rule with a rod of iron means you shall shepherd with a rod of iron. 
not beat with, okay? We need to understand that God doesn't come and beat us with a rod of iron. Rather, it says that God's laws, physical, moral, spiritual, going more, but that those are permanent. They do not change. His physical laws, his moral laws, his spiritual laws don't change. They're permanent. So this rod of iron, here's where I'd like for you to think of it as, as a, it's here. Right here, I got a little, I could step out here and whoo, way I'd go. Well, let's say that this is the entrance to, to God's everlasting life and peace. And the thing you have to do is you have to go under this bar. It's a bar there. And you know what? I see Janelle Rittenhouse sitting out there, and I know her. She's just honoring enough that she says, I'm not going to go under that. I'm going to go over it. Sorry, Janelle. <laughs> but God has this bar, and if you try to go over it, smack, down you come. If you try to go around it, bam, back you go. Because some of you are devious, say, I'm going to just go around it. It's inflexible in that sense. What should that rod of iron, what effect should that have on our lives? Has anyone here memorized Psalm 23? Probably all of you have at some time or another memorized Psalm 23. It says, thy rod and thy staff, what did they do? They beat me. They hammer me. They make it tough for me. No, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Hallelujah. It's good to know that God's word doesn't change. We're comforted by that because we get all these things trying to change all around us. And we say, oh my goodness. But, oh, here's that bar. Here's God's word. I know what really is. Now, we live in an age when rebellion is rampant. When we're, I've got to be careful here. I'll go way off target and talk about stuff. But you can, you can do that on your own, all right? How's that? You do that on your own, and I'll let you apply that. How we're in rampant rebellion in an age in which we live. <clears throat> well, Why? Why Jesus? Does Jesus judge us? Nope, he came to rescue us. We have another, I have a, 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 a verse that Jesus spoke in John 12. See what he says? If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. Who? The word which I spoke will be what judges him at the last day. The gracious thing that God did is he sent his son to save the world. Now the world from the very beginning has had strong, sure, certain foundations, which then we've 
in the fall, go away from, but he comes, he calls us back. And Jesus says that not one jot or tittle of the law shall go away until all has been fulfilled. Paul says the law is just, holy, and good. Now he's talking about the moral law in the Old Testament. You can apply it to, to God's physical law, to God's spiritual laws, all those things. So Jesus did not come to judge. He came to save. But He came to save because people are being judged by the Word. <laughs> you know you're going to, be, you're going to experience that. You, how do you live in, in terms of relationship to God? <clears throat> His Word sets the bar. Here's where it is. Come in. Come in. Come in. How about the armies of heaven? Who are they? Now we have to sort of hurry along. Uh, they are God's people down through the ages. That's who the armies of heaven are. Notice it says they're clothed in linen, bright and clean. We already saw that back in verse 8 last week. That describes the saints, the people, clothed in linen, bright and clean. Now, the, the thing we want to note here is that Christ goes before them and they follow. Did you see that? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. We follow Christ. We let our light shine. Clean linen. Let your good works shine before men in such a way that they will see God and glory, give glory to God. That's Matthew 5, 17 and 5, 16, something like that. forget exactly where. That's what they do. Now, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, which we read, is a good example of this. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, you know, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart to, to separate between bone and marrow. Uh, we need to, he, he does that with us. And so, there's this ongoing work of progressive sanctification in our lives. And as we hear that Word, it comes in and searches and tries us, it transforms us, that becomes evident and real to people around us. And they say, why? What's going on? And now God uses that His own way. We can't, we can't make that happen, but God does that. And we need to bear witness and talk and all that. But God's the one who does that. And we can tell people, you know, that there is this one which all have to deal with. Pat and I were talking the other night, and I was telling about a, I, was at a, I preached a funeral for a fellow who was an unbeliever, uh, made no bones about it. And we were over to the old church, <clears throat> and one of his friends was there. And I sat with him at the, at the dinner afterwards. Because he was by himself, I went over there, and uh, so I'm trying to talk with him, and uh, we get to talk about moral things. He says, "Well, you know, I, I don't sin." Oh, really? <laughs> you don't? You've never sinned? Nope, don't sin. I only do what's right. It's good. And uh, I tried all kind of things. You know, the Ray Comfort stuff. Well, tell me, have you ever told a lie? Nope, never tell a lie. <laughs> really? You've never had a lustful thought? Nope, never had a lustful thought in my heart. Well, you can't deal with anyone like that. But you let your light shine. And God will use that. And by His Spirit, He can come through that and take that man's heart and life and pierce it and show him where he really is. And he's going to have to do that. Now, it was one thing to have John Niederhaus ask you, have you ever told a lie? It will be another thing to have the one with the eyes that burn like fire look you in the face and say, tell me. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever did X, Y, Z? And I suspect his answer won't be quite the same. 
So the armies of heaven are us. Now, how should we understand this? I have to hurry on here. How do we understand all this? As I said before, God has judged nations throughout history. Good leaders, good leaders of nations come to recognize this. And they change. They, they change their attitude. They change their, their uh, notions. <clears throat> you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, in certain places, he's called the American Caesar. Did you know that? There's books out about that. Lincoln, the American Caesar. Why? Well, you know, during the Civil War, he suspended the writ of habeas corpus. They could throw everybody in jail for and keep as long as they went up with, <clears throat> without pressing charges. And they did some people like that. He did all sorts of things that people didn't like. But uh, Lincoln knew the Word of God. He was raised in a good home. His mom was a Christian. And uh, God used all that. He read the Bible. He knew the Bible forward and backwards. He'd been an unbeliever. Whether he stayed that way, I don't know. But listen to what he said here in his, in his second inaugural address. Uh, this is just a part of it. But listen to the voice of experience, to the voice that has gone through some things. He, you know, he says this in March of 1865. For over four years... Battles have been raging. He's been on battle. He's seen all this stuff going on. Here's what he says. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash, with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as was said 3,000 years ago. How long ago from then was 3,000 years? About the year 1,000 B.C. So he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about, well, I think that's happened here. Psalm 19, verse 9. It's so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I, I, I hear that, and I hear the voice of a humble heart. The voice of one who has kept the war. He could, have, he could have compromised and the war could have been over <clears throat> years before. He said, no, no, no. And he, you know, hundreds of thousands died because of that. He has to live with that. And in this little text I've given here, you catch the flavor of his soul. <clears throat> and he sees that God's hand is at work. All this horrible manifestation of wrath that we see, it's God's hand. He says, so be it. Uh, we can look throughout history and see the hand of God's reign. As he raises up and puts down leaders and nations and peoples. There's a guy named William Symington. Uh, he lived in the early 19th century. He died, I think, in 18... Maybe 72 or 64, something like that. He wrote a book published in 1839 called uh, Messiah the Prince. And he has some things there to, that I think are worthy, worthy of us to uh, think about. We do the first screen up here. It says, We are thus bound to believe that those occurrences by which guilty nations are scourged and chastised for their sins are not merely brought about in providence, but ordered and directed by the mediator. That's a hard statement to take. 
It's a good statement that God's not absent anywhere. He's always involved. And here's by the mediator, the son of God with his word coming out of his mouth. So then he goes on and lists some things that, that where we can see that. He says, and whether therefore we behold a desolating sword cutting off inhabitants, this decimating wars that happen in the land. Oh my goodness, that's it. What else? Or the blasting mildew destroying crops. How do we account for that? How about this for our day and age? Or commercial stagnation obstructing the sources of wealth. We're having that happen right now. Or Another one's happening right now. Or wasting disease, stalking with ghastly power over a land. <coughs> Here's another one happening to us right now. Or the upheavings of popular commotion, overturning the foundations of social order. You realize our social order has been turned over the last 15 years. He says, we need to see in this the judgment of God. The just true and righteous judgment of God. So here's, what he, here's how he concludes. It says, we recognize the wisdom and might and righteous retribution of Prince Messiah, carrying into execution the divine decree. And he quotes from Isaiah 60, the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. So that's why we don't see nations going on and on and on and on. Psalm 2 happens. They rise up against God and they fall. So, that's Revelation 19, 11 through 16. We still have to do 17 through 21. Quickly, quickly, quickly. It's near. <laughs> All right, verses 17 and 18, it's a reality too few people know. Great battlefields are horrid places afterwards. It talks here about gathering the birds together to, to be on the battlefield. Did you know there was a stench in the air at Gettysburg for months afterwards? There were people who would just dig in the dirt and stick their face in the dirt so they could breathe something that doesn't have the putrid smell of flesh that's rotting or burned or something like that. Just get dirt flow through there. Uh, it was, it was, and th that's just one battlefield. There have been thousands of battlefields like that. And this says that those battlefields, and here we see the horror of war, and why we pray that wars would end, the horrors of war are just like this. What it says in 17 and 18 of chapter 19. And then we have the last, I saw. You know, this is, I saw an angel. Then is, I saw the beasts and the kings. <clears throat> this is the longer view meant to encourage us. Armies and kings and beasts will always rise up to oppose Jesus and his people. We can expect that. There is war, certainly physical, but also spiritual, relational, etc. He's saying here, be assured. Be encouraged. Take courage. This may indeed happen. In fact, Jesus himself said this in John 16. Here's what he said. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So the outcome is certain. And that's what we're going to see all down through the rest of this book of Revelation. The outcome is certain. We've seen a horrendous example of God's judgment in the, the events of AD 66 through 70, but 
on down through history, the outcome is certain. There's a good verse from Colossians I'd like to end with. It says this, He, that is Jesus, is the head over all rule and authority. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, they're all gone. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Christ is victor. Christ is king. Christ is, Christ is Lord of lords. And we who receive Him, who let Him, His, his sacrificial death, take away our guilt of death, debt of guilt, are born again, made alive, to follow Him. Because the sword of the Word has come through, pierced into our hearts, shown us what's there, showed us His eyes, and we cry out for mercy. And He says, come unto me, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. As we come, He receives us, and He says, go to all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the very things that are on our cornerstone out here, is what he says. The sword of the word is a mighty sword and it's a good sword. Amen.